Welcome back to the Sing When You're Losing podcast, a podcast about resilience. I believe that setbacks and struggles aren't meant to stop us, they're meant to teach us. Across this series, I interview athletes, coaches, managers, trainers, and more so that we can glean from their wisdom and learn from their stories for how to sing when you're losing. In this episode, I get the privilege of interviewing former Premier League and FIFA referee Lee Probert. Lee was forced into early retirement following an injury he incurred in a collision during a match he was refereeing. After having back surgery, he was never able to fully recover. Like many athletes, this sent Lee into a bit of a tailspin. In this interview, you'll hear how this affected him and how he's managed to pull through the mental health issues he suffered after retiring. We also get to ask him some questions we've always wanted to ask a referee, but never got the chance. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And stay tuned for more exciting releases coming soon. It's time for you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. I'm your host, Buddy Owen, and it's time to learn to sing when you're losing. Today, I'm really excited to introduce to you someone that I met this summer by the pool, of all places, in Spain, uh, sitting by the pool, uh, both of us uh, talking football in our separate areas, and uh, ended up coming across each other. A former referee, Mr. Lee Probert. Lee, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks, buddy, and good to catch up with you. It's, um, the weather's just as nice down here in Bath at the moment, so it does feel like Spain, but I'm just missing the pool. Missing the pool and the sangria and... You, you might have been on the sangria, you, might and you, you saw me with a cup of coffee in my hand or a, or a bottle of water, you know, and you know I wasn't on any sangria. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm talking about me then, not you. Old habits die hard with me, that's the trouble, so... Um, I never used to drink during the season, so I think I'm just trying to roll it on and trying to sort of uh, not go down that road again. That's a good habit, good habit to keep. Um, but yeah, it's sunny here as well near Liverpool, but um, definitely not as warm as it was in Spain. No, it was but it was, it was really good. It was, yeah, very warm by the pool. Um, but it was great to meet you there, uh, a bit of a surprise. Uh, we had plenty of time to chat on one particular day and and just get to know each other a bit. And I really appreciate you agreeing to come on the show. No, I mean, it was great to catch up with you, buddy. And, and like I said, for everything at the moment, um, it sounds fantastic. So an opportunity to sit down with you and, and chat football and chat everything really was, was just great. So nice to catch up now. Excellent. So just tell us quickly who you are and where you're from, where you live now, family, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, Lee Probert, former Premier League referee and FIFA referee. Um, I live just outside Bath. I was born in Aylesbury, um, moved to the Isle of Wight when I was a young boy with my mum and dad. Um, and like I say, as time moves on and life the journey you go through, ended up here uh, living just outside of Bath, which is very, very nice. So uh Married to Mel, um, we just had a new grandson arrive uh, yesterday morning, £10, 4 ounces. Uh, Luke has just arrived, so we, uh, I was on granddad duties yesterday uh, looking after our two-year-old grandson, um, taking him to the park and seeing the animals before he was introduced to his uh, baby brother this morning. 
Oh, wow. Congratulations. And £10 for the baby. That, uh don't really want to think about that much. No, do I, don't, I don't think he's going to follow in the footsteps of his, uh, his granddad as a ref with uh, weighing at £10 for. I think he's more into to other sports at uh, that size. <laughs> Certainly is at the moment anyway. Um, so congratulations on the new arrival. Okay. And uh, glad that you and, and all the family are well yeah, in this well, difficult time. Yeah, it certainly is difficult. It's, uh, it's certainly a strange, a strange year, that's for sure. Yeah, and I guess still the the anxiety over you have no idea when it's going to end. Uh, I think that's that's getting to a lot of people now, isn't it? Just the uncertainty of everything. You know, we talked a lot even in, by the pool in Spain about the number of players being impacted by this, the number of athletes being impacted by this and the decrease in income, especially for lower league clubs. And we might come back to some of that a bit later, but uh, it is a difficult time. It certainly is. Were you always into sports? I was actually, um, even when it, as it started as a kid. I mean, I had a ball when I was just knee high to a grasshopper and just run around a pitch. And just my dad was always involved in football. So, yeah, football was everything. Um, I do enjoy most sports. I'm not too clever on cricket um, and rugby. I don't really understand because I'm not really built for a rugby person. So never used to like rugby at school. I uh, always just try and dip out of that whenever possible. But most other things, anything with a ball, I was quite happy to, to be. But um, when it come to physical contact and stuff with rugby, leave me out of that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of with you on the cricket. Uh, as an American, don't get it, actually. I like to think of cricket as a pastime rather than a sport, I think. Yeah, definitely. My, my best man, um, tr he's into his cricket and he tried one day to try and get me into everything about off stump and LBW. Well, yeah, not, um, it yeah. wasn't thinking in too well. <laughs> you know, okay. It, I'm going to say it up front here and then we all know. Uh, referees are often the butt of jokes. Uh, they, <laughs> they're not the most popular people on the planet often. Uh, so were were you were you a good footballer? Were you were you good quality, or were you always destined for refereeing? Well, everyone says that those who are referees were always either picked last at school, or were always going to be in goal. Um, I wanted to be a professional footballer. That's all I wanted to be. Um, everything I wanted to do, I was just wanted to be a footballer because that's really I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my dad who coached at um, one of the top levels um, where I lived in the Isle of Wight. So all I wanted to do was play football. Um, and then sadly, it sort of got to a stage where I ended up in goal, um, playing in goal. Um, and refereeing was the last thing I wanted to be. Um, I didn't want to be a ref. Um, and yeah, because at the end of the day, it wasn't the be end and end or and it, it wasn't that glamour thing of a footballer or anything else. So it was... Um, yeah, we do get a bit of stick, um, but the game will be lost without us. Um, you can't have a game without a referee because you'd have 22 players all having a different of an opinion. And before you know where you are, you'll have a game that's going to be finished because no one can make an actual proper decision. So, um, yeah, we do get a bit of stick, but they can't, they can't uh, have a game without us. That's a dead set. Absolutely. So uh, how old were you when you thought, I want to be a referee. Now, I could be, but 
I want to be? It wasn't something I really wanted to be, as I say. It's, um, I followed, my dad always wanted to be a ref, but in those days, you had to be a policeman, a teacher, or come from a, a, a background. My dad was a shopkeeper, an ex-milkman, and was never able to, to referee. And it's something he wanted to do, and he kept saying to me about referee and referee and referee, and it's like, Dad, I don't want to be a ref. Please just understand, I don't want to be a ref. And we went into see all sports and we were playing and football and stuff. And then all of a sudden, I thought, one day I said to my dad, I might give it a go, dad. Uh, which, I mean, you could have had a, have had a bigger smile from, from ear to ear when he, when he knew that uh, I, I was then sort of thinking about having a go at refereeing. And we had a, um, a family friend who was at uh, the top level at the time, Philip Don, he was um, refereeing. And he was a close friend of the family. And he sort of said, look, just have a go and see what happens. And who knows? Um, so that was it. Uh, age of 16, I took my referees exam on the Isle of Wight and sort of enjoyed it, really. Um, if it wasn't for my mum and dad, who knows where I'd have been. Uh, they were on the phone to clubs on a Saturday, on a Sunday. Can my, ref, can my son referee Saturday morning? Can he referee Saturday afternoon? So I was doing four or five games a weekend. And it was like, hang on a minute. I can only do one game a weekend and it's like my mum and dad were taking me over. It was 30 minutes here. Um, I sort of quite enjoyed it and it sort of progressed from then and then into high school. I remember my old PE teacher saying to me, Lee, you're never any good at French. So don't worry about missing out French. We've got a game against another school which we need a referee for. So I said, well, if you can get me out of double French after lunch, I'll come and referee it. So we got to a stage of even at school, um, I was refereeing games um, through the inter-school stuff and then it sort of gradually carried on from there, really. So when you when did you become a professional referee then? 2007, uh, I joined the Premier League, um, which was just a dream come true, really, to, to be involved in, in refereeing and then for it to be a full-time job and dedicate the time to train, uh, and to be able to walk out in front of thousands, um, as it was then, not at the moment, behind closed doors, but to be able to walk out in, in front of fans and just experience something that I would wanted to feel like as when I was, if I was a player, but I was never going to um, achieve that. So to have the, have the best seat in the house, um, because sometimes people say to you, what's it like in the middle? And, and you've got the best seat in the house unless you're behind... 14 camera angles and something else that want to prove you doing wrong. But um, it is, it's just a great feeling to be out there in the middle with 22 players enjoying what you're doing. And I guess you're running out in front of thousands, but uh, the players get their names chanted a lot. The referee, whenever his name is chanted, it's not usually a positive, is it? So what, what's that like? What's that experience like? <laughs> End of day, buddy. I mean, it's like anything. You're never going to please everybody, are you? I mean, we can have, we could have had six or seven people sitting around a pool. We could have discussed anything about football refereeing and we'd all come up with six different ideas or six different opinions. And that's what makes football so good. It's an opinion. And a lot, end of the day, referees are always going to make mistakes. And we don't make mistakes because we, we're not very good. It's just we get proved something or a TV camera angle proves us something different. But... When you first look at something, you make an instinctive decision. Um, and without TV replays and cameras, that's it. Unless you go back and watch Matter Today or, or EFL highlights, you're never going to know if that right decision's right or wrong. So it's 
There is times when I'm sure that uh, the referee's name's been chanted, you don't know what you're doing, that's always quite a good one. Um, although we do know what we're doing, um, although the laws of the game are quite different, um, the referees do know what they're doing at, uh, at the time. So, um, but that's always a good one, you don't know what you're doing. My now 12-year-old daughter must have been eight or nine the first time I took her to a live football match. Uh, it was at Anfield. And, at one point she turned to me and she said, Daddy, why are they singing that the referee is a banker? Uh, and I had, to, <laughs> I had to explain to her that that's, well, I didn't explain to her that that's no, not it's what probably, You're probably best off not explaining that one. Yeah, I think I said, I think that's what he does for his full-time job when he's not refereeing. <laughs> yeah, um, we, are, we, are, we so, are an easy target, aren't we? We are an easy target. Yes. Um, What's the biggest match that you've ever refereed? Um, internationally, I was lucky enough to be at the Champions League quarterfinal, uh, Real Madrid, Borussia Dortmund in 2014. But it has to be the ultimate, um, which is an absolute honour to take charge of the 2014 FA Cup final, Arsenal versus Hull um, at Wembley. Um, as a young boy, just wanted to be a footballer watching the FA Cup from the build-up in the morning when they used to take it from the hotel and see the teams arriving. And then me and my friends used to go down the park and recreate the goals, the game, um, and to walk out um, on, uh, at, at Wembley for the FA Cup final 2014 on the uh, 17th of May. was just a dream come true, really. That's probably the, the biggest one I've ever... Um, you're not going to get any better than that as, a, as, an, as an English person with the FA Cup. No, amazing. Is it possible not to be influenced a little bit by a home crowd? 50,000 people yelling something at you. Is, are you influenced at all? Is it po impossible not to be? No, it's not really. It's, what you've got to realise is that referees will only referee what's put in front of them. And I've had this conversation quite a lot with people that says, Oh, all the home all the home fan team always gets the most decisions. But when a team's at home, they will attack more than when they are away. So it always then seems that whenever the away team's there, they're sitting back and they're committing fouls. And then the perception is, and I've had, it's quite interesting, we had this conversation, the perception is that all the home team decisions always go their way. And it's like, well, if you've got a team that are attacking all the time and you've got a team that's trying to stop them from attacking and fouling them, then it, the perception is that they're getting all the decisions. So it's no, it's it's a bit of a myth where you would say that the referee buckles under that because it's not. But the, when you look at the actual stats of a home team going forward, pressing possession, it then when you look at everything, it would come out to think, oh, okay, they probably do get more decisions when they're at home. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure it's pretty fair. Other than at Man United, they, they always get way too many decisions to go their way. <laughs> Everyone else is probably. I'm referring to Man United. I'm sure that I wasn't wavered by the 75,000 crowd that were there. <laughs> That's what they all say. Uh, what was your favourite part of being a referee? I, do, I really just enjoy being part of the theatre. And it is a theatre, it's a business, it, it's an entertainment business. And to be part of that, 
to walk out, to arrive at the ground with my team, to, to assistants, fourth official, and to, to be part of the environment of, of, a, of a football match at the Premier League is just a great, great feeling and, and something that when you finish, you don't half miss. Because um, it is just, it's a great feeling to be out there and, and doing what you enjoy doing. Um, you train all week, like the players do. We train every day. We had heart rate monitors. We were on nutrition based. We did absolutely everything that the football teams did. Um, we looked at set play. Everything that footballers did, we did as refs, just on a different on a different basis. And to be part of it is just an amazing feeling, and and just one that it is when you're on that journey, it's great to uh, to be part of. There are certainly, I mean, referees are people, so it seems obvious, but there are definitely refereeing personalities, aren't there? Different types. So some referees are are quite dramatic and seem as if they are playing to the camera. <laughs> so, some referees are quite and, and bearing in mind, buddy, where you live, and and I know exactly where you're going with that. So yeah, they're um <laughs> and we had that and we had that conversation um, around the pool, I know. <laughs> so but some are some are some are quite dramatic, some are quite militant, um, want to be the sergeant on the field and make it, are there, do you think that's a good thing? Should there be, should, should referees be a bit more similar in the way they control matches? Do some referees play up a bit too much for the camera in your opinion? At the end of the day, we've all got person, we're all different. Everybody's different, everyone in the whole, if, if everyone was the same, it, it would be a disaster, wouldn't it? If we, if, we didn't have different traits. Um, me personally, I'd like to go referee the game. Deliver, bring, my biggest thing to the lads in the dressing room was let's bring this game to a safe conclusion without any talking points. That's all I ever wanted to do. All I wanted to do was go in, do the game and go home. Um, didn't want to be remembered for any sort of decisions that impacted the result. Didn't want to be sending players off incorrectly. I, I just wanted to go deliver the game with a smile on my face, because I did enjoy what I did. I, I was a players ref. Um, I got on well with players. I got on well with the clubs. Because I treated everyone like I wanted to be treated myself as well. That's the biggest thing, is uh, we've just done a, a training camp, and, and we spoke about how to deal with, with situations. You do, if you've got a, something that's burning, you don't antagonise that burning flame by putting something that will combust it and make it stronger. You're trying sort of calm it down and try and pan down the flames and refereeing is no different um it's we've all got different traits we've all got different ways of how we're going to go about it um personalities or same with players there are players that are flamboyant flicking here flicking there whatever and there are players that are rough and tough and, and like a tackle so it's it's one of them and we're all different um i don't think we need to be robotic i think we need to be good managers um, we have to manage situations, um, see things before they happen, uh, which is not possible. But if you can try and stop something from escalating um, into a problem, then that's good because the game comes to a safe conclusion and you keep 22 players on the pitch and everyone says, oh, who was the ref? And that's how I used to be. Um, and that's what I wanted to be was the ref that 
would deliver a game and get himself home. I used to dread the phone call. I used to phone my wife about six o'clock. She used to say, can we watch match of the day? And I'd say, yeah, we seem to be all right. Everything seems to go okay. We used to dread it at half past 10, just in case that the camera angles would prove something that I'd missed or anything like that. But <laughs> listen, we, we're, we are human. We, we are there. And there are some referees that we know that are a little bit more flamboyant. There are more referees that are more regimental. And I, and I just think that I think players will want to know how to talk to a ref, when to talk to a ref, and when not to. Um, and, and I think the players and referees are very similar to that. There's, there's times when you can speak to a player, sometimes when you don't want to have a dialogue with a player because he's either irate or he's not very happy about something. So you don't. So there is lots of things that differences between players and refs where. Yeah, I mean, we've all got personalities, but um, some like to take them in different directions. But for me, I just like to, under the radar, low-key, deliver the game safely and get home. You talk about the way maybe refs talk to players or players talk to refs. You know, over the years, there's been a lot of conversation about compare the way a rugby match is run and the way uh, rugby ref speaks to the players and the players do or don't speak to the ref. And then maybe football should be a bit more like that. What's your take on that? I think when you when you think when you look at the boys from the rugby, um, and I speak to the guys from rugby, people say to me, "Oh, well, they're all sort of gentlemen," and I'm sure deep down they're winners. Which if they're not winners, they wouldn't be at the top level. And I'm sure that there are times when there is a debate between the ref and the player in rugby that we don't always see that. Uh, is not always much as highlighted as ref as um, footballers, but it's a completely different sport, isn't it? It's um, there's a lot more money involved in in football and at the top level, and one position up in a Premier League, if you're finishing 12th or 13th, could be the difference of a million pounds, whatever it could be. So, yeah, I mean, it's how can I describe it without being sort of controversial? Is that Footballers are a different breed to rugby players. They're a different breed to tennis players. Although you've got a Djokovic, is that, I think it was the uh, was it Djokovic, the uh, tennis player, who put the, right. into the into the line judge. So, hey, listen, we're, and I'm sure it's not just um, footballers. I'd <laughs> like so come on, we, we have to just try and give them some some credit somewhere. But do you think a footballer should be carded for swearing at a referee? See, there's. It's quite difficult now because the laws of the game, you can't be carded for someone that's swearing. It can be insulting. Um, so if you find it insulting, and of course you deal with it. And there's no, we, what we don't want to be doing is we don't want to be carding everybody. So if someone kicks a ball from over the line, over the crossbar from 12 yards, and then starts chanting to himself, effing and blinding and moaning and groaning, people are going to hear it. Of course they are. And we can't go carding that because it's, but I think what a referee has to take is a responsibility for the image of the game to say, if I am seen to be upset with you and causing and, and irate and, and swearing and stuff, and if I find that insulting, then of course you'll send him off because you can't have the image of the game tarnished by somebody as close as you as you are effing and blinding and, and swearing at you. So I think at, at the moment, um, I think it's in a good place. Uh, I don't think there's so much, uh, with, it's not being 
broadcast as much about it. But I think at the moment it's we got it right because there are I think the respect to the players is, is coming back, especially at the top level, because they get together at the beginning of the season, all the captains get together with with the match officials and they have a code of conduct. So um, yeah, I'm I'm sure it's coming back. But again, I'm going to go back to TV, and I think TV highlight more things. Um, I was involved in a game where a player swore into the steady cam, uh, um, and I was the fourth official at the time. And the um, can't think what, the floor manager stood by the side of me and said to me. Uh, the producer wants to play. There's a 10-second delay, apparently, I, I was told, on the steady cam. And when the player swore into it, they didn't have to play it. But because it was a player of who it was, they played it, and all of a sudden it becomes big news on the Saturday TV everywhere. So I think TV have a little bit to play in it as well. When, when they pan into somebody who's not very happy, they're not going to be saying... Hey, buddy, how are you doing? Is everything okay? I'm sure that I'll be able to a few bits. And, and we can all lip read, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. So what was your least favourite part of refereeing? The least part of refereeing? Knowing or not knowing that you'd made an error when you'd got home and watched match of the day. Uh, that, was all, <laughs> that was the worst bit. I mean, it, it's not, I, I love what I did. Um, I've been to lots of countries. I've met lots of fantastic people. Um, I loved it. Um, but what I didn't like was in my own performances, making those errors that were seen to be thinking, oh, how have I not seen that on a day? Or could I have seen it? Could I have worked a little bit harder to get into an angle that would have maybe seen it? And if it was one of those where the camera angle from the other side of the stands or wherever proved me wrong, it was one of them, Lee, look, don't beat yourself up because you're never going to see that. That's an angle that you're never going to see on a pitch. But it was the ones where I had a view or misread. They're, they're the things that I used to get wound up about uh, because I could control that. It was for me then, that was for me. The other stuff that I couldn't control, um, I never used to worry about too much. All it was was about as long as I could try and get the performances on the pitch, which made me come away with that game, as I said, in that safe conclusion, making sure that I did it. That was the things that... Um, really used to gripe me is if I was getting things wrong uh, on a pitch. Was there a particular team that you liked refereeing the least? Uh, I used to like, listen, it, sound, it sounds like I'm sitting on the fence, but I used to love refereeing wherever. But there was, I don't know what it was, um, but there was one man, wherever this manager was, I never seemed to have a good game. <laughs> and even the perception now it's like when I, when I see him um, he'll say to me do you know what every time I ref as a manager of whatever you never had a good game and it, I just don't know if it was psychological or anything but there was just one wherever he was managing it didn't matter where it was or whatever he was the perception was that he never thought I had a good game um, <laughs> And I'm glad he's retired now and he's probably glad I am as well. But um, it was just one of those where you just, it wasn't really a team thing. It was, and I don't even know why it was, but every time I'd refereed his team, he just didn't think that I'd refereed well. So um, it wasn't... Are you going to tell us who it was? Tony Pulis. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 
there was times when I'd refereed a couple of games when Tony was man, and the game seemed to go really well and there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, a week, a few months later, when I'd referee him again, it was like, oh, you had us last week, you were there. And I don't know, perhaps it was a perception thing, but um, like I say, if Tony's ever watching this, then um, Tony, it wasn't anything <laughs> so personal. It's just the perception <laughs> that he had that I'd, I'd never refereed his team very well. Maybe that was psychological with him. Maybe he said that to every referee just to try to get them on side. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Referees obviously are now under more scrutiny than they've ever been with the introduction of VAR. So do you think it's becoming too much for referees? Uh, and what's your view of VAR and the way it's being implemented in the Premier League? Okay, I, I, was, I was lucky enough to be involved for, for the trials for the three years um, as VAR. Um, as for scrutiny under, under the microscope for refs, we've always had it. Um, the, the way it is now is I used to watch matches on a Sunday on television. You used to have the halfway line camera and you'd go and all of a sudden the ball was down the other end and you'd see the camera whiz down. So technology's moved on. We've got probably 20, maybe 30 cameras in a ground now, a Premier League one. So that scrutiny from every angle becomes more um, as time moves on. So it's easier now to prove that a decision is or isn't it. Um, but for the VAR, I think it's fantastic. I think it will be really, really good. Um, I wish I'd have had it on the la my last season. Um, I refereed Newcastle versus Bournemouth. Um, ball goes into the box. Fernandez, the, the centre-half for Newcastle, what I believe comes across, kicks the ball into David Brooks, his shins, and the ball ricochets forward, out for a goal kick. Clear as day, I'm happy with the goal kick. David Brooks sits on the floor a little bit, says he's kicked me. No, I wasn't so sure. And then after the game, we had um, a um, observer come in that had a, an iPad, and he had sent clips from the match centre so we could see them before we left the stadium. And it was a penalty. Uh, what I believe that the ball would, didn't come, the ball did come off um, David Brooks' shins, but Fernandez had actually kicked him across the top of the knee. So it should have been a penalty. That's when I think VAR would have been great to say, Lee, what have you seen? I've seen this. This is what's happened. Uh, no, it's not happened like that. Do you want to go and see it on the screen or do you believe what I'm saying? Put the ball on the spot. I'd have gone. I'm happy to take your word and put the ball on the spot. So for me, the way it's been implemented at the moment is there's been lots to talk about not using the screens. Uh, I'm so pleased that the screens are back. And I, last week there was um, an overturned red card on the game on a review. Uh, which I think is very, very good and great for the referee to be able to go and look at it and say, I believe that's a red card in real time. Um, now let me, and then the VARs looked at it and said, I think you might want to review this. So he's, to, he's gone across and, and reviewed it and rescinded the red card for a yellow, which I think is great. Um, and I think if it was any debate, if it was a, a clear red card, then he wouldn't have needed to go across. So, I think, for me, the way it needs to be implemented is the referees have to make a decision on the pitch. If you were my VAR buddy, you would have to be almost in my head and understanding what I'm seeing, what I'm doing on the pitch. And this is where VAR and AVAR need to have that understanding as what is the referee thinking on the pitch and what is he doing? 
because if you don't if you don't know what I'm doing on a pitch, then a VAR just becomes all of a sudden a person sees something and says, "Buddy, we need to have a look at this and change the decision." Where if I say to you clearly, "Buddy, this is what's happened. This is what I've seen," and you're looking at a camera angle with four different angles that completely prove me wrong, then by all means turn me over and, and change my mind. But you, as a referee, you have to make that decision on the pitch. Um, and if it's, if it's one of those, it's a debatable one, which we, we spoke about, and we go back to those six people sitting around a pool, and we've all got a different opinion, then stick with the on-field decision, because it's not a clear and obvious error. Um, and I think, I think this season you'll see more of that happening, the referee making the decision on the pitch. Because at the end of the day, it's the referee that on that pitch that makes the decision, not the VAR, unless it's a real clear and obvious error that, let's say the ball goes into the penalty area, I make a decision and I say, the centre-half's clearly won the ball, corner, and you look at the camera angle and you go, no, Lee, that's really not happened. It's a, it's a complete wipeout. However you've seen it, it's completely wrong. Then either send me to the screen to have a look at it or say, no, Lee, take the ball from the corner and put it on the spot because it's a penalty. I think VAR will be a real, real good piece of technology moving forward. A bit like the goal line. I think the goal line's great because other than the one issue we had um, towards the end of last season, when that ball, I mean, the ball is literally fractions over the line now and the, and the goal technology, the goal detection system will go off and it'll say goal, goal, goal on your ear and on your watch. No one in there, no one in human eye will see the ball that fraction over the line. And I think that, that's great. I mean, that's, that's perfect. The clear and obvious is uh, an interesting one, isn't it? And it does still leave uh, open for interpretation. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think when you talk about that, buddy, I think you know it when you when you're sitting in the in the sand wherever you're watching your football, um, you will have a feel on the day of what's right and what's not. Um, and those decisions. When, they are, when they're happening, like uh, you'll be sitting in the stands, a player will be sent off and you'll go, oh, that's a bad tackle. Because you, you can sense in the stadium when, I mean, I've sat in some grounds and then all of a sudden stadium goes, when a tackle goes in, the stadium seems to go silent for seconds. It's like, <gasps> and it's people's gasp of breath. And, and that's the same as, as refereeing is that you will have a sense of what it is and, and what's not. But what, you, what VAR is really going to be good for is that one when I take you back to Newcastle when I'm driving home from Newcastle and then I see on match of the day it should have been a penalty. That's what you want VAR for. Not for the isn't it, could be, maybe, or maybe a little bit of shirt pulling. If it's shirt pulling um, and it's literally a big triangle away from the body and it's clear... And, no, and the referee is in a position where he doesn't see it, then that's what that's what VAR can do. It's that real clear and obvious. Not the ones that we'll sit over and go, well, look, he's tried to do this, he's tried to do that. Can we, can't we? Leave that alone. Because that, that's what football's all about, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, and I, I, and I agree with you. I, I just feel like referees may be being a bit undone because it seems often that VAR is spending a lot of time looking at things and if you have to look at it for two or three minutes on VAR, well, then it can't be clear and obvious 
no, uh, no. far too long. I mean, last year before COVID kicked in, I was lucky enough to be, um, I went, I was lucky enough to go to Old Trafford. Um, and uh, one of our friends invited us up and we sat there. I wouldn't call that lucky, but okay. <laughs> so um, I managed to sit and a goal was scored. And we, we, we had a screen above us. Um, we was in one of the boxes. And ball comes over. I'm looking at it. And there's me and my wife, Mel, and, and our friends. And I said, oh, goal. Um, one nil to the away team. Uh, looked at the screen and thought, yeah, okay, that's happy. And there's no, the ball hasn't come off the arm um, or off the hand, so that's good. And then all of a sudden, we then get into realms of, Nearly two minutes have gone where the ball then goes from the goalkeeper to the halfway line for a restart. The ball then comes back towards the referee who stood on the edge of the penalty area. And I'm thinking, well, I've looked at this once live. I've seen it twice replays on the screen. What's the problem? And it's like you said, buddy, there was, it went in to see, it, it was really about one minute 45. And then the goal was given. And everyone said to me, well, what's that about? And to be honest, I didn't know. And I didn't know what they were looking for. And I couldn't no. see where there was an issue, but they, they must have been. So I think, like you say, it's one of them where let's make, them, and let's make it short, sharp, precise. Because if we are looking into stuff that is going on and on and on, then like you said, that can't be a clear and obvious error. And then stick with the match referee, the on-field decision of the referee. We could talk about this all day uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and would happily do that. But let's move on because there's a lot that I want to talk to you about. Uh, and um, so you, you were a referee for how long professionally have you been? 13 years. So 12, 12 years on a pitch and, uh, and one year injured. Right. Okay. Uh, and let's get into that now. So you, you weren't ready to retire when retirement came. Uh, it was injury that got you in the end. Yeah, I mean, I was unfortunate to be in a collision with uh, at Wigan, Wigan Fulham, um, which when I went, once the story unfolds, was the catalyst that started it. When I saw the surgeon, he asked me if I'd have been in a car crash um, because of the severe impact and the damage I'd done to my lower back, um, which I couldn't even think about being in a car crash. You'd know if you'd been in a car crash, um, and it was just nothing that was triggering the mind of, of what it was um, until um, we, we see the, the collision between myself, Steve Sidwell, and, uh, and I think it was Ben Watson at the time, uh, Wigan, Wigan Fulham. Um, and the surgeon looked at the screen and said, there's your problem. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't ready to finish. My mind tells me I'm still physically ready to go and I still think I can still do it. Um, I had a brilliant pre-season last year. I trained every day in Spain. Uh, I did all my pre-season in Spain. Um, as you know, we're lucky enough to, to live in a, in a, or have a property in a beautiful place in Spain. So I spent as much time as I could there, trained hard, felt really good. Um, but last, last summer, I just, I don't know if I overdid it or it, my body was saying to me, Lee, you just, you need to start slowing down because Every morning we had the clubs out. I was either seeing a physio, having acupuncture into my lower back because everything was just starting to tighten up. Um, and then on one of the games I refereed, uh, the last 10 minutes, I could just feel 
sort of a limp coming back in. Um, and those, that limp signs were the same limping issue that I had pre my operation. So I came back, um, spoke to Gary Lewin and Dr. Ian Beasy, who looked after me through my operation and through all my rehab, who were really, really good. They were in England at the time. Um, and Gary's, Gary's words to me was, I'm not gonna make the decision for you, um, but you can have two injections into your lower back. We can have an epidural, put a nerve blocker in. That will send a message to the brain to tell you there's no, nothing's gonna hurt, so you can get through and carry on running. But you've already had the operation um, two years ago, and we wrote you off then. Uh, I wasn't meant to be coming back after the operation, that should have been me done, but through my own stupidity and dedication, I got back on the pitch. Um, but my body just said to me, it's time up. And then I spoke to Mike Riley and said to Mike, this is the position I'm in. And uh, if you want me, then I need these injections, but it comes at a risk. Um, and that risk means that I could end up doing more damage. Uh, and who knows in, in years to come, that could affect uh, the rest of my life. So with a big, heavy heart, it was something that I didn't want to do, that we had to make a decision into retiring. And um, I wasn't ready for it. That's a dead cert. Yeah. What was the surgery that you had? Uh, I had lower back surgery, L5-S1. So um, what happened was the, um, the sciatic nerve had been crushed um, by my L5-S1, which then lost all the feeling down the right side. So literally you could hit me with a hammer, drive a car into me. I wouldn't have felt anything. Uh, I had no feeling down the right side, no. just complete, completely gone. Um, so um, they had to really, three and a half hours, the operation in Harley Street, um, the surgeon um, was, was fantastic and I got well looked after. Um, and then the rehab was, was really, really good with the PGMOL. Um, we managed to, um, to get back and now I've got full feeling. Um, still get some issues now and again, um, but nothing too bad. But then when I try and overdo it and try and, when my brain tells me that I can go for a run or I can go and do this, it, um, for about the next four days, it reminds me while I'm not refereeing at the top level anymore. But you can still golf. Yeah, well, I can scramble around. Because um, <laughs> yeah, that, that side, that way movement seems to be good. It's that, it's that constant push, press, press that, um, that pounds it and the running that just pushes the, the, uh, the, the bone to the nerve and just shuts it down again. So, yeah, it's... Um, I do miss my running, I do miss my training, but um, taking 600 ibuprofen and tablets to have to sleep at night is just not the way that uh, I want to sort of live the rest of my life. No. So you realised that the best decision for you was to hang up the boots. Uh, and when did you make that decision? Well, <laughs> I didn't want to make that decision. That, that, that decision was took right out of my hands and, and that was last September, uh, 13th of September last year. I went to training camp. Uh, we had to report back last August. Um, so last August was the time when the discussions were, come on, just think about your long-term health. That's more important. But I couldn't think of anything else that I wanted to do was just get back on the pitch. I wanted these injections. I wanted to get back to work. I wanted to get back doing what I enjoyed doing because I wasn't ready to finish. So that was August 2018. 2018. Uh, and you had, is that right? Or 2019? 2019 it was. 2019. Yeah, I've been gone a year now. Uh, and but you had made the decision actually, give me the injections. 
Uh, what was Mel, your wife, saying about that at the time? Well, the thing is, it's like she was saying to me, look, look after you. You got to look after your body. You're only 47. Come on. you. It's not the end of the world. But it, would, it was the end of the world because I was stopped doing something that I was so used to doing. I'd done since I was a kid. Uh, I'd get up in the morning. I'd go training. I'd prepare for the weekend. I just... I just said to her, I'm not, I'm not ready to give up yet. I'm not, I'm not giving up. Um, so she said, look, I'll support you, whatever you need. If you, if you just want to go and have the injections and go another year and, and just try it. Uh, but she said, just, just think about what long-term damage you're doing to yourself. And it was, it's very difficult to try and ex just accept that I'm going to finish because it mentally, I just, I, I still know I can still run around the pitch, but just the body's just not allowing me to do it. No, and uh, this is this is really interesting. Yeah, uh, so from that point, they the uh, the referees association, I guess. Who made the decision for you that that this is it? Yeah, well, I mean, long conversations with Mike Riley, who who supported me through everything. I mean, even through when my injury, um, he was there when I came out of surgery. So. I mean, the PGMO were really good, um, fantastic support through them and, and stuff. So when I sat down with Mike, I just said, look, Mike, if you want me to go, then I will. Um, I don't want to, but let's let's just go into it and let's, let's make a decision. So um, we had a long conversation and it's like, come on, just think of yourself. Don't think of what you're what you're doing just think of yourself in long term so yeah might make the might sort of make the decision along with the surgeon and, and the uh, and the physios to say come on lee um, don't be silly um you you're going to give yourself more damage if you continue so um yeah it was a big decision to take on the 13th of september last year yeah so i work with athletes to help them prepare for retirement because the the stats show that nearly 80% of footballers are broke, divorced, or depressed, or some combination of all three of those within three years of retirement. 75% are divorced within five years of retirement for footballers. This is, uh, referees don't normally, you don't register them because they seem outside of the game, but actually you're on the pitch, you're running, all eyes are on you as much as anyone else to um so the thought of retiring you're going to go through some of those same issues as footballers this is this is a it's a big part of your life it's there's the buzz of being in front of the fans there's the buzz of being in front of the camera there's the buzz of running the show on the field so what was that like for you then well i think you suffered a bit didn't you well I'm suffering now, buddy, because I'm worried about these um, divorce rates and everything else that the players. I just, I just hope Mel was not having <laughs> ideas of uh, divorcing me. Uh, no, let, <laughs> it's um, those, those stats. I can, I can understand why. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I hit rock bottom when I, um, when I realised that it's come to an end because I hadn't planned for it. I didn't see it coming. Um, I had nothing in place to think what am I going to do um, and if it wasn't for the for the, the strength of the sports psychologist that um, I'd speak to most days um, we had a sports psychologist that um, we worked with um, and I spoke to him most days and 
I did it rock bottom and I understand exactly how footballers feel and how every other professional sports athletes feel when they have to finish. Um, and when I have to, when, when I say when I have to finish, if you know you're coming, if I'd have planned my, my retirement, then it, it might have been a bit of an easier pill to swallow. But because I never planned it, as of the 13th of September 2019, Lee Probert was no longer a Premier League referee. Lee Probert was no, not getting up in the morning to have to go training. Lee Probert wasn't preparing for matches at the weekend. Lee Probert had nothing, nothing to do, nothing to get up for. And it was a case of, what am I going to do in my life? And it really, it really did affect me badly. Um, it affected Mel as well because... I'm sat in a say I'm in the house. I'm in the house 24-7. I'm not going anywhere. I didn't have any enthusiasm to get up. It was like, well, I've got nothing to get up for, so what's the point? And I was like staying in bed till whatever time. Now, normally I'm up about, I'm an, I'm an early person. I like to get up and about. I used to do my training early in the morning. And all that stopped. And I just, and I had nowhere to turn and I didn't know where to turn. Many conversations with the um, sports sports psychologist about staying strong and yes okay the plans were in place of me starting a new business which were only in planning stage um which was going to be my exit strategy when i wanted to leave the premier league and, and referee football but it was very very tough and lonely and in a real dark place mm. and a place that, I, that i'm not going to go back to it's, um, it's not a place that uh, I really want to return to, um, which is why now it's, I'm focusing so much on moving forward, uh, make sure that I stay focused, just keeping active and, and just trying to get back to life as it is normal. Um, very difficult at the moment with COVID-19 because everything's thing. So it's a case of, yeah, let's get up in the morning. Let's get out for a walk. Let's try and get some active, spend some time with my grandson, um, some time on the golf course, and and let's just get back to everyday activities. Because during this, during when I was a Premier League referee, I didn't have those. It was a focus on training, getting ready, preparing, same as players do. So yeah, I can understand why that that rate is so high. Yeah. So so you entered a depression when he retired and, and spoke to the psychologist quite regularly? Yeah, I mean, he, he must have just dreaded me ringing because I, it, no, I, never saw, I never saw a light at the end of the tunnel. It was just so dark. Um, and I just couldn't think of anything worse than just getting up in the morning and just hanging around doing nothing. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's just a place that I ne I've been and I'm, I don't want to go back to, and, and I feel for those people that are in the same boat and I know exactly how they're feeling. Often one of the most difficult things when you begin to feel that way, especially when you're an athlete, uh, is just to tell someone to talk about it. How was that, how was that for you? What was it like the first time you had to say to someone, listen, I, I'm not coping? Um, really difficult, to be honest, because... I've always been quite a bubbly person, sort of enjoyed everything and, and always been quite mentally strong uh, and tried to stay strong and always been positive. So 
to have negative thoughts was just like, whoa, hang on, this this is not normal. What what on earth's happening? Um, and I'd speak quite a lot with the sports psychologists because I found that I could open up to them. And sometimes it was just normal chit chat. We weren't we wouldn't talk about many. We'd have just a a dialogue and just as we are here, just a normal chat. And I think it was once I'd sort of got. I sort of explain you the feelings, the emotions and everything else I was going through and, and the dark places I was and, and not sleeping and the worry about how you're going to keep a roof over your head, at what you're going to do next, where's the next pound coming from. It was just what I'm, it, it just everything was going through and, and just escalating and escalating. Um, and it was just constant conversations with a sports psychologist that got me starting to think a little bit different. Now that wasn't within the first couple of days, don't get me wrong, this went on for quite a few months. Christmas was tough because it was the first Christmas I'd really had without preparing for games, Boxing Day and stuff. And my mum came down for Christmas um, and she wanted to go to a game. And she said, oh, we always go to a game, Boxing Day. And it was like, yeah, I don't want to go. I don't want to go and watch a game because that's where I should be. I should be on the pitch. Boxing Day is what we've done for years. Um, but we went and I'm glad I went because it then started to make me come out a little bit. And then come the new year, I was lucky enough to, with the business that we've set up, um, go back to Spain and, and see some teams from abroad that were there for winter breaks. And then of course, once the season was coming to a close of last season, uh, the business that we've set up for um, training camps in Spain, Portugal and Dubai for professional teams to go out and train was looking really, really good. Um, I came back from Spain last February, or this February as it is, um, a completely different person, really buzzing, flying, thinking, great, we've got 15 teams now going out uh, to our training venues. I was looking for a great summer and then, of course, March 23rd turns up and COVID-19 appears. So from going rock bottom to building yourself up to real, really, really good, March appears and nothing again. But all of the talk we've done with a sports psychologist was, this isn't in my control. COVID-19 is out of anyone's control. No one saw it coming. So it's affected not just Lee Pro, but it's affected millions of people in the whole world. So I've been quite strong through COVID-19 because it's something that's not in my control. Um, it's not that Lee Pro has decided to set up a business that allows teams to go and train and then people aren't going to come with me. It's because of the pandemic we've got and thousands and, and millions of people are dying or or being tested and, and have passing negative or positive tests. So I'm, I'm feeling very positive at the moment, um, but I'm never going to go back to that dark place of uh, where I was when I finished because it is dark and, and not a nice place to be in. Is there anything that you could have done, do you think, or wish you had done earlier to prepare yourself for, for that time of retirement? Yeah. Um, I wish I'd have, it's a bit like everything. I wanted to be a professional footballer and left school. So I didn't, I wasn't the brightest kid in the school. Um, cause all I wanted to do was be a, 
be a footballer. So my exams and that was just, do you know what? I'll, I'll do the best I can, but do you know what? I'm going to be a footballer. That didn't materialise. So I was lucky enough to be a full-time referee. And that's all I saw myself then. Refereeing, fantastic. It's never going to end. It's going to be here till I want it to finish. And I just wish I'd have planned earlier for something that might happen that's not in your control. And that wasn't in my control because the injury was so bad that somebody else's decision took it away from me. And I think if I'd have still been refereeing now, I could have been starting to plan my exit strategy and saying, you know what, in a year's time, two years time, I'm going to go and do this. Where I think about my time again, I would have then got into planning an exit package to say, okay, when I finish refereeing, I'm going to go and do this because I've already set the foundations for it. Um, So yeah, deep, deep down, I think if I could have my time again, I would plan into making sure that when I finished whatever I was doing, I was then moving into something else, which then would have filled that gap um, of those dark mornings and those dark nights. And I'm just going to call them dark 24 hours because that's what they were. 24 hours a day of not knowing what you're going to do, how you're going to go about it. And what was the point? What was the point of getting up in the morning? What's the point of being here um, when it's just not worth it. Yeah. Again, I, you know, you're not alone. Um, as I say, we, you know, we work at future proof sports with footballers who they, they go through the same thing. They, they don't want to think about retirement. They don't want to think about what's next. Right. This is all they've ever known. Uh, and somehow just think this is all they will ever do. <laughs> uh, whereas actually, you, Neil Mellor, likes to say you're longer out of the game than you are in it, certainly for a yeah. footballer. Uh, but there's no time spent preparing for that two-thirds of the rest of your working life. And you, like you, you don't know when retirement is coming, do you? That's, that's the thing. I think that was, that was the biggest issue, really, is that I didn't know it was coming. I couldn't prepare mm. for it. I think, I think if you prepare yourself for something then it's, it's, it's an easy appeal to swallow when it arrives because you've started to perfectly. You, you never, you're ne- never fully prepared for when it happens, but you are more prepared than you would have been if you, if you didn't know it was coming. And I think that's the biggest thing is that if sure. you know that your career is going to be X, Y, Z, then start planning for your next chapter, your next journey in your life because you're right. I mean, footballers have got such a short um, lifespan in, in the game. Um, as if refer- I mean, I never saw my injury. If you'd have said to me, Lee, you're going to get a severe injury, um, then I'd have gone, no, don't be daft because referees don't get injured. Um, but it's just, and that's what I say to uh, the people that are on our, when we do our training camps or whenever I do our, um, any speaking, it's just like, you just got to make sure that you prepare for whatever happens next because you don't know what's around the corner. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about what you're doing now. You've alluded to it a few times that one of the things that helped with your recovery was getting this new business started, which is called Par Four Sports. Par so, four sports, yeah. Par, then the number four. Yeah. 
than sports. So what is that exactly? Like I say, I've always enjoyed being part of teams, watching teams train and what. So over the past few years, um, living in Spain, there's been teams coming out to Spain and, and able to train and people going abroad to train. So I sort of, I'm, I like that sort of looking after environment. I still, that, that sort of refereeing thing where you're not in charge of it, but if you need something, I can go and sort it out. And it's that sort of, I think that's the refereeing background. You're the, you're the middle person between the venue and the club that says, I need some water on the pitch or I need this or I need that, or we need dinner at six o'clock. I quite like that organising sort of structured timetable that says, right, your team want breakfast at eight, lunch at one, dinner at six, and you're going to train then. And then I quite like that environment where I can go to the venue and say, right, the teams are going to do this. There's the timetable. Any problems come and see me and I can liaise with the club. So, yeah, that's really what um, what it is. It's, um, I've been lucky that uh, the Premier League and the EFL have been fantastic supporting in helping me do that um, with the contacts that I have through through football is that um, we can arrange their pre-season or winter breaks um, in Dubai, in Portugal, in, in Spain. We, we only use four and four and five star quality hotels, all with natural grass pitches, uh, with gym facilities, uh, because at the end of the day, teams, uh, I've done a lot of research, I've spoke to a lot of managers, and as long as you've got a quality hotel with excellent food, and really good natural grass pitches, uh, the teams don't need much more. Um, boys want a little game of golf, of course, so most of our, well, nearly all of our venues have got golf courses, that always helps for a bit of downtime. Uh, high performance gyms, a lot of them have got, but then a lot of them can still do their gym work down the side of the pitch, so don't always need gyms now. And what with COVID-19 about being in gyms with sterilizing bits, a lot of the players now can do their S&C work on the side of the pitch. Uh, with their S&C coach. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, it was looking very bright and it was looking very good this summer with uh, with pre-season and, and teams coming out, which I'm sure when it's safe to do so and when restrictions are lifted and um, we start in the new world and the, and the new normal, whenever that uh, new normal is, that um, teams will want to travel again. And uh, all our venues have been, COVID-19 policies are in place, they've all been checked for measures. So, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, at the moment, it's, I'm just enjoying me summer, me golf. So it has taken a bit of a hit because, um, and again, you've said you know, that there was the potential there for, you know, this, this business is helping you find a new purpose and find something to do, but then it stopped. But you're coping okay with that at the minute? Yeah. You're, you're, you're controlling the controllable? I think, like I say, because this is such a major, major virus that's affected everybody in the whole world, not just sport. It, it's just affected everybody. I think for me, knowing that and where I was last year, that was something that out of my control, but it, I got through that. This one is a world issue um, from, I mean, there's cases in Greenland. I mean, how on earth do you get cases in Greenland? Who knows? But I think, <laughs> I think because it is as serious as it is and we've lost 42,000 lives, whatever it is in the UK, um, it's not about par four sports and league pro, but worrying too much about teams having training camps is making sure that 
hey, everyone, stay safe, sticks to the COVID-19 measures, washing your hands, etc. I mean, I don't think, I, I think there's any skin left in my hat. I've washed them so many times and <laughs> sanitised them and wear them in my mask. So, yeah, um, I'm in a good place. Um, we're all right at the moment. So um, we're staying strong, we're staying positive, I'm still keeping in touch with a lot of the clubs, which is great. Um, they're in the same boat, aren't they? They're, they're missing their fans. So, uh, and I'm sure the players are feeling that when they, the season started last week, and I'm sure that they're missing walking out on the opening day with no fans. So, yeah, it's, um, we're, we're in a good place. Good, good. Uh, that's not the only thing you do, though. So, you are still involved with training referees as well. Uh, you recently had a, a week at St George's Park. Well, so, what are you doing with young referees? Yeah, well, what it was was I. I was never lucky enough to experience what I had when I finished. Um, training every day, S&C coaches, presentations, training, development, everything that is in place now is just so much better than when I started. So when I finished, I sort of sat down and thought, well, yes, as much as I want to work with the clubs, I've still got a little bit that I want to give refereeing and assistant refereeing. And how can I do that? So Within part of Path 4 Sports, we decided to, to speak to all the county FAs and say, how about we do a training camp for your next generation of match officials from referees from level seven, which is grassroots, to level four, which is just before they start to move into um, sort of PGMOL. So the county FAs look after them. So we then decided to put together a training camp in Spain uh, which I wrote to the FA on and said, we're going to do this in Spain. We want to take the next generation of young match officials through a training camp like I experienced as a select group one referee and what select group two do. And that's what we did. Um, we, we planned all that. We were going to Royal Campamore uh, in July. Um, so we had 40 coming out on that. Um, we had everything planned. They were doing fitness sessions. They were doing being taught S&C. Uh, core stability, strength and conditioning, which is a massive part of looking and being a referee. Um, body language is, is really important. So we had all that in place. We had fitness assessments going. We had workshops where the groups would look at video presentations and we'd do bits and pieces and make them enjoy it. Make them realise that running around a pitch is enjoyable. Um, that sadly got cancelled. So the group that we spoke to that were coming that had already paid their deposits and everything said, no, we want to continue. We want to continue. So fantastic zoom um, came into uh, its, its fold. And uh, we did an eight week zoom thing on a Sunday night during lockdown where all of the group would come together and we would discuss video clips. We'd talk about uh, presentations on how to deal with um, fouls and misconduct or handball. And then, we said, look, the World Health Organization has told us we're not allowed to travel. We can't do this, so we're going to have to cancel Spain. So all the groups said, no, 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 we, we want to go. We want to go. We want to do something. And they said, can't we do it in the UK? Can't. So we looked at uh, a venue. And at the end of the day, there's only one real venue to, to use in the UK, which was, of course, St George's Park, the home of the FA, the home of the national team, and where I trained for many years as a, as a Premier League referee and, and where they're, they're still training now. So we thought, well, why not give them an opportunity to feel what it's like as a Premier League referee? 
so they arrived on the so we went there and they arrived on the thursday lunchtime uh we did the covid19 um, policy about making sure you wear your mask to where you do so we were in a bubble we got everybody tested uh, with their temperature so we were all uh, all in the one place we stayed together as a bubble and we just treated them like professional match officials it didn't matter where they refereed what level they were they were all treated the same um, and we used a big a big uh, motivational video with um, from YouTube called no excuses um, and we played that to them when we when we got in there and said it doesn't matter that if Lee Probert can run for 15 shuttles on a, on a level and you can only run eight. It doesn't matter. It's about how far you personally can take yourself and where you want to go in your journey. Um, and on Thursday, they arrived all sort of quiet and not knowing what to experience to leaving on Sunday, completely different people couldn't wait for the season to start. They've all got in touch and they, they've all hit the ground running. They've all had their COVID-19 grassroots video given to them about how to make sure they look after themselves. They've had the new introduction of the laws of the game. So they've all asked about next year and we are going to go back to Spain next year as long as um, it's safe to do so and there's no regulations on quarantining. So yeah, next I think it's next June. We, we're just in the process of planning that. Um, we're going to try and get some funding for that as well um, because at the end of the day the grassroots um, don't get as much funding um, as uh, as we'd like them to do so these uh, these referees self-funded it which just proves that there are the kids out there that want to try and get on it and and try and be one step ahead of the person they're going to be refereeing the following week so yeah it was it was a fantastic four days and give me a bit of a buzz because i got my boots back out <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and your whistle. <clears throat> well, yeah. Um, the, the only thing about the whistle was I just to, just to blow it, just to try and keep them all in control. <laughs> so that is also run under the Par Four Sports banner. Yeah, that's going to be run under the Par Four Sports banner with the with the help of the county FAs. They'll uh, they'll help us um, get out there, and then um, like I say, then it's then down to the individuals to um, to get in touch with us if they want to go uh, once we've got the dates confirmed we're not planning anything at the moment because we don't know how long it's going to be uh, before the restrictions are lifted because it's not really fair to take take anybody away for four or five days and then have to quarantine for two weeks because people still have jobs and it's not going to be difficult for them so we'll hopefully get some plans in place um, within the next couple of months once we know the regulations and stuff so uh It'll, uh, it will all be out and about soon. It'll be on our website as well, par4sports.com, so uh, they can get in touch with us that way. Okay. Uh, kind of one final question is on the refereeing. Do you think more ex-footballers should become referees? Well, buddy, if I had a pound, if I had a pound, if I could answer that, I'd, I'd be a millionaire <laughs> by now. Um, yeah. That, people, let's, let's put it in say, does... Does every player become a good manager to become a good coach? No. Does every good player become a good ref? Who knows? Um, it's something that people have said about want to fast track footballers because they know about the game. Well, okay, they might know about the game, but there is also everything else that goes into it. We've spoke about laws of the game, there's management skills. And so, yeah, if if players want to move into refereeing, then I'd say, yeah, come on, let's go, because it's 
the next best thing if you're not playing you're on the pitch with 22 players and it is a fantastic place to be so but do they make good ones that's interesting that so obviously while players are playing they can get their coaching badges so is it ever offered to them that you know of listen not every player way too many players think they're going to go into management and there just aren't enough paying management positions out there for them to get into uh, and it's either that or media and again there aren't enough paying media positions out there for them all to go into there obviously aren't enough referee positions for them all to go into but at least it's another potential path for them to go down yeah. do you know if that's ever offered to them i think i think the pfa do try and sort of say to players there is a, a, an opportunity to go into refereeing but the sad thing is is when they start they have to start at the bottom they they can't just all of a sudden say that i've played for a league two team so i'm now going to go and referee in league two um you're gonna to have to come in and you're gonna when you learn to referee you're gonna to have to start at the bottom um and you're gonna to have to referee sat, saturday afternoons or sunday mornings and i think that sort of is not the right line that weeds them all out <laughs> yeah it's like do i really want to get up sunday morning at half past 10 and go and referee a few <laughs> lads that have been out on the night before probably not so no i think it's um i think it's right that they don't go into just expect to come out of football or finish football names go oh, i'm going to go and referee at whatever level um because that's not sure. fair on, on everyone's coming through so but there is a pathway if ex um footballers want to go into that um then all they've got to do is get in touch with their county fa's and uh, pass the referees exam and you know come on to our training camp they're going to be fit enough for our training camp so um and then we can help them develop and who knows they could be on the on the football league and premier league in years to come <laughs> but uh but no, I think it's um, it's a bit like everything, isn't it? You get players that go into coaching and managing at top level, and there's some that just don't. So um, it's a bit like refereeing. You either like it or you don't. Yeah. So just finishing off, if anyone wants to contact you to talk about becoming a referee, what it's like to referee, maybe to book you to come in and do something with their local grassroots referees or to come and do a talk or a coaching session, whatever it is, how do they contact you? What they're going to do is send me an email. It's lee.probe at par4sports.com. Um, we'll do, we do talks, we do motivational bits, we do training and development with licensee coaches that we work with. So there's a, under the par4 sports banner, we've got so, many, so much that we can offer county FAs, grassroots. Um, there hopefully should be information social media wise coming out in the next week or so that I'm going to be doing some bits with a, with a company that uh, helps grassroots sports, but uh, I'm not going to steal anyone's thunder with that. I'll let them promote that. But uh, yeah, listen, there's uh, some great opportunities out there. Uh, they just need to support the development and, uh, and we're willing to help that. So um, yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch, then uh, by all means, just email me, lee.probe.parkwithsports.com. Perfect. Lee, thank you so much. It's been such a, a privilege uh, and very entertaining talking to you. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. You, you, you know where I am if you need me. Uh, you never know. We might even be just sitting around a pool chatting another day. Who knows? That would be great. Or on a golf course. Or on a, I, That would be good too. That sounds good then. I'll, uh, I'll hold you to that. <laughs> You'll have to travel to the north and I'll take you to my club. Oh, I don't mind that either. No problem at all. Great. Thanks so much. I, I do appreciate it. And, right, uh, 
I wish you well with the business, the Poffle Sports, and uh, let's catch up again soon. Go do. Take care. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Seeing When You're Losing with Lee Probert. If you want to know more about becoming a referee or to book Lee to come and speak at your next event, please look him up at Par 4 Sports. That's Par, then the number four, Sports. Remember, we are now under the Future Proof Sports Consulting banner and can be found at futureproofsc.com. That's future-proofsc.com or at futureproofsc on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you found this helpful, leave a review and spread the word as well. Don't forget to subscribe or to check back for our next exciting conversation. The world is a crazy and unpredictable place, so don't forget to sing when you're losing.